This show is part of the Deluxe Edition Network. To find the other great shows on the network, head over to the Deluxe Edition Network.com. In these times, these awful, fractious times, we are all we have left. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deluxe Edition. I am your host, Casey Shearer. With me, as always, Ray, the podcaster. What's going on, Casey? Hey, not much, Ray. We just had another great interview with the amazing George Buza, a voice actor, uh, actor, all-around great guy. He was the voice of Beast for the X-Men animated series. Uh, He was in Sinbad, the show, Maniac Mansion, uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, the TV show. Uh, He was the sheriff during the second and third season. George is just a great guy. Uh, This was a really fun episode. Yeah, he's a great storyteller, has a shit ton of great stories, you know. Uh, He's somebody we could have back because I'm sure if we poke him a little bit, we can get some of those stories he didn't want to tell today. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we were poking George a little bit. We, uh, Ray and I, we kept mentioning the, the wild side of Casey and Ray. And uh, we were getting a couple uh, really good stories out of George, uh, some of his partying days uh, stories from uh, some of the sets. So uh, that was really cool. Uh, this was another really fun episode, and we're going to get right into it right after these quick plugs. <laughs> to find our other shows, go to deluxeedition.show. If you'd like to follow us on Instagram or Twitter, go to Pod. To support the show, go to patreon.com slash deluxe edition pod, or you can buy a t-shirt over at whatamaneuver.net slash collections slash deluxe dash edition. And don't forget to go over to the network and check out the deluxe edition network at deluxe edition network.com. And the podcast of the month this month is horsing around my friends over at the red horse hair salon in temple pennsylvania they do uh conspiracy theories and uh just some really fun fun stuff one of the episodes was a guy showing a bottle up his butt in yugoslavia uh, and it started a war um the last episode they did was someone from canada an indestructible bear suit i guess this guy got attacked by a bear and then he was pissed off so he built a bear suit that was indestructible uh, it's a lot of fun. They're a lot of fun. Go check them out. The the Horsing Around podcast. And Ray, where can people find you? Uh, you can come hang out with me at the Ten Cent Beer Night podcast, and you can get my crap over at T Public. I got shirts, mugs, pillows, notebooks. Probably got underwear. I don't know. You can get just about anything on that site. <laughs> get a uh, maybe next time for the next episode. I'll wear a. Uh, 10 cent beer night podcast thong yeah i'll 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 get them right up as soon as we get off of this thing (laughs) all right check ray out over at the 10 cent beer night podcast check us out tell your friends uh deluxe edition it helps us more than you know and here's our episode with george booza george here i'm is (laughs) how are you man pretty good Good to see you, man. Hey, we we uh we do things a little different on this uh, podcast. We just we roll right into it, so we're already recording. 
Fine by me. <laughs> and uh, I want to, I told this story on the podcast uh, a couple weeks ago when I contacted your manager and he mailed me back. Uh, sure. Well, you know, I'll see if the beast is available. And I said to my girlfriend, I was like, man, this guy must have like a, a hell of a reputation. His name's the, they call him the beast. And then <laughs> because when I found out about you, or how I found out about you was at uh, Joe Bob Briggs show in Jacksonville, Florida, where he was showing an episode or he was showing the movie, the brain. <laughs> <laughs> and well, you know that, he, I never thought for a minute that that movie would make it past like 10 minutes. And I got contacted a couple of years ago by uh, this guy who runs horror cons in uh, Canada and that they were releasing it on Blu-ray, and they had this big do with this Comic-Con, and he wanted me to go. I said, the brain of all the things that I've done in the 52 years I've been active as an actor, and it's the brain? And they had the original last remaining piece of the brain that they were auctioning off. So uh, it was kind of neat. Uh, I'd never done a horror con before. And uh, it's a whole different group of people than uh, would come to Comic-Cons. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah, Joe Bob Briggs, he does this. It's called uh, Cerebellum Night, where he play, he'll play two movies and talk about the movies. And uh, he he kind of talked about you a lot during that. And I was like, wow, this guy's, you know, that that sparks my interest in the, in the person. And uh, that movie, The Brain Man... You were running around that movie constantly. You were oh, yeah, yeah. Stop running. They they even made note of that in a couple of the reviews of how much running I had to do. <laughs> and, you know, the funny thing is, again, this is like a little anecdote. There was a practice during the practical jokes where the crew would attach clothes pegs onto your back to see if anybody would catch them in the scene. <clears throat> and I had this the scene of running the stairs. And they had attached like two or three clothes pegs to the back of my co lab coat. And we had to do the whole thing over again. <laughs> and uh, I, I don't even want to say how pissed off I was with that. That uh, I'm not a big fan of running to begin with. <laughs> and to have to do it over and over again because some guys decided it would be a hoot to see if they could get away with putting some clothes pegs on my ass. You know <laughs> That was one of my questions. So you were each one of those scenes different or were they using like, so you were each one of those scenes was different. They weren't using the same scene. Oh, no, no. Running. It wasn't like stock footage of big fat guy running. It was like, <laughs> I had to do that all myself over and over again. Wow. Yeah. That was a, that was a lot of running. Man. Oh yeah. Great movie. If I, are you familiar with the brain, Ray? I have seen the brain. Yeah, uh, you talk about horror movies. Uh, you did um, a Christmas horror story. Now that is one of my favorites. Your part could have been a standalone movie, in my opinion, because that arc was so good at the end. I I didn't even see that coming, even though like no. Shatner, no Shatner was like kept talking about the mall and what was going on, and I kept. And I well, that cost me a like, beard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because we shot the entire movie first as Santa Claus, and then I had to go under the blade and uh, turn into a whole different guy. 
And uh, a lot of people just didn't catch on that it was the same guy until the very end of the movie. So, yeah, and yeah. also I had to keep it under wraps whenever anybody went to see it. I couldn't give it away. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was an amazing storyline. It was. It, it kind of you know the the great thing about anthology. it. Rotten Tomatoes gave that an eighty percent. Oh, it deserves it. So I was very pleased about that. I was very afraid when we were getting reviewed by the New York Times and we were under the gun with Rotten Tomatoes and we survived both quite well. Yeah, yeah I, I yeah, just that... wish I wish it would have just been your story arc for the hour and a half standard horror movie because it it's just so many other things. I was like, man, they could have done a lot with this. They could have. You were amazing in that. Well, thank you. Really good. But that was one of my favorites. And I quite enjoyed the fact that they interwove three separate stories and made it one and kind of linked them all together with Krampus. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't mind that at all. But I also think the other three stories could have stood on their own, too. They could. They were all one act plays. And it could have been a four four movie um, series, basically, in my opinion. Yeah, I wanted to talk about that. That your that movie came out October twenty third, two thousand and fifteen, and then the the Krampus movie, like the that got a lot of publicity, came out December fourth, two thousand fifteen. Not not much longer after. No, and I I've never seen that Krampus movie, but yours the the one that you're in was great, and I did see you earlier in the film, and I was like, look at George pulling double duty, <laughs> p- playing the the other character, but I never. I never put two and two together until the end. Yeah. I thought it was very, very well written. Yeah. Yeah. Really good. And movie. Shatner was brilliant. Did, did Just you get brilliant. To, did you get to actually hang out with him on? Saturday well, never night? hang out, but I shared the screen with him for that one tiny little scene where he's in the yes. studio and I press my, you know, uh, yes. <laughs> Your message for Christmas. <laughs> and they flew me down to L.A. for that. So I was quite happy. Nice. And, and I got to meet Shatner because he was one of my idols. Like I was a yeah. big Star Trek fan from get go. And to actually share the screen with him once was really a thrill. And you flew down. You're living in Canada, right? Yeah, I uh, emigrated here uh, almost 50 years ago. Wow. I was brought up to do some theater. And every time I packed up to go back home, I got offered another job and kept renewing my work permit. And back then I did an awful lot of theater and that was one of my my big big love. And uh, as an actor in theater you had the choice of the regional theaters in the states, New York, Los Angeles or Chicago. And my very best friend in university, Bill Jones, now runs a theater in Chicago and we went our separate ways when we graduated in 72 50 years ago. And uh, he went to Chicago, and uh, I stayed around for a little while in Cleveland and worked in the uh, local theaters, and then uh, got my union ticket down at Trumpet in the Land, which is a big outdoor spectacle, historical theater, written by Graham Greene. Uh, He drums along the Mohawk, you know, the very famous writer. And then from there, I got offered this job in Canada, and uh, I came up here to do the play. And funny enough, the guy that wrote that play is Des Mackinoff. Jersey Boys, Tommy. So it was kind of like the growing up stage of theater in Canada and of all these people that went on to do great things. And I was just so entranced by the opportunities here in theater that I decided I was going to 
apply for landed status, get my permanent residency card, and pursue a career here. And it, uh, I never looked back. I still wow. went back to work occasionally in the States, but <laughs> doing theater here was very, very rewarding. Did you ever make it back to Cleveland? Oh, yeah. I was just down there not long ago, like yeah. a, last week. You probably have family here still. Yeah, my brother's still there. He runs a transmission shop in Cleveland. Yeah, that's where he I'm builds from. race cars. Yeah, I'm from Cleveland. That's why I asked. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What part? Uh, I live in the suburbs. I'm out in uh, Brunswick, Medina area now. Oh yeah. Uh, I'm originally from Cleveland. So. Well, I went to Baldwin Wallace. Okay. Yeah. My. Uh, we used my to print our newspaper in Medina. Yeah, yeah my aunt te- was uh, a baker at Baldwin Wallace. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Small That's world. Eh? The, yeah. Mention uh, mentioning the theater, George. Uh, we we jump all around on this show. Nothing's nothing's in order here. Um, you mentioned the theater, though, and I was reading and listening to your career, uh, you know, over the last few weeks, and something that you said about the theater really stuck with me. When you were in high school, you would go around to other schools to to girls' schools. Oh yeah, and audition for their plays like i never knew i never knew that was a thing like that people did that like is that still a thing do people well i don't know i i really don't know but i went to an all-boys school in cleveland saint ignatius you're probably familiar with that city champions for years on end sir football factory football fans and uh it was my girlfriend who went to lourdes academy that conned me into being in their school play they needed guys to audition, and I'd never even seen a play before. And, of course, there were, you know, you better come down and audition for this, or, uh, you know, uh, our relationship might take a turn, you know. And Oh, I was there, you know, <laughs> saying, our, saying our alma mater for, uh, or whatever, the song for my audition. And I got the part of Mr. Bumble in uh, Oliver. And the minute I stepped out on stage on opening night, I knew this is it. This is what I wanted to do. And to keep it up, I knew that all girls schools that uh, in Cleveland needed guys to audition because they didn't have any. So, so I went around and I auditioned for as many plays as I could and went from one to another. And I think in my senior year, I ended up doing like three or four plays. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I didn't know. I didn't know that that was a thing that you could go from school to school to to do that. Well, it's because they're all boys schools. They're private sure. schools. They're all girls schools, and the all girls schools used to put out uh, an audition notice at the boys schools in the drama departments, saying we need guys to audition for such and such a play. And I just wait for the announcement, and I'd go down there and uh, do my best, and I got cast in almost everything I auditioned for. Very cool. So as a, as a young actor, we've had a lot of different uh, people on this show who have come, you know, they have a theater background. Ray and I aren't actors or anything, but if a young actor was listening to this or watching this, how important is the theater to make it in the oh, business, I guess? In terms of your craft, I think it's invaluable. I wouldn't have wanted to start in any other way. I had years of theater under my belt and dozens of plays before I did my very first TV show or movie. And uh, it gave you a real, even though it's a different style of acting, like in the theater, you've got to bring your performance to the audience without going overboard. In TV and film, the camera comes to you. So you can make your performance a lot smaller, 
You don't have to project it as far. Like in Trumpet in the Land, that was an 1,800-seat theater, and it was outdoors. So people were sitting in the back row. You were like that big, and you had to carry your voice so that uh, it went all the way to the back rows, and they had the uh, same performance that the people had in the front row. And that show is still going on. It's wow. in uh, New Philadelphia, Ohio. But I think theater is invaluable. And that's also where you get your uh, most experience. Because once you've got that base, you can adapt your performance to, to fit into film or TV very easily. Do you ever go back and do any theater or anything? No, unfortunately, I haven't done any since 1986. I don't know why. Perhaps because I got so busy doing TV and film. Sure. That I kind of let it slide. <clears throat> and then eventually you get so far away from it that the idea of getting in front of a live audience and memorizing all those lines, there's no safety net in theater. You know, you blow a line or you dry on in a, in a movie or TV, eh, they do another take, everybody laughs, and if it's funny enough, <laughs> it makes the gag reel. But on stage, you're sitting out there and you dry, and unless you're working with some really generous actors who will help you along, you're out there eating it. And I remember I did one play called Curse of the Werewolf where I played the mad scientist who changes people into werewolves. And uh, I had this three-page monologue that went on forever. And we'd done the play for quite a while and it was just like second nature. And all of a sudden, one night, I dried. And I didn't know, it was a, a solo. And the, the only other person on stage was one of my victims who I had tied to a pole with a sock in her mouth. So there was no chance you... <laughs> and I, I'm sitting there for like, God, what comes next? And to me, it seemed like an eternity, but it must have been like maybe 30, 40 seconds. But it's enough. Yeah. You know, and all of a sudden you're you turn pale and you the heart starts jumping out of your chest because there is no no out unless you find those words or make something up that leads you back into where you're supposed to go. <laughs> you're eating the big one. Is, uh, wow. Is there a play that you would actually want to do that you, you know, really like have always wanted to do that could get you? Well, there were a couple. Back? Yeah. Uh, there was a Shakespeare. I always wanted to uh, play Falstaff in my older years. I did it when I was far too young. I did uh, Merry Wives when I was in university. But I was not even 20 years old. And there I am playing a guy my age right now. So I was way beyond my scope. But in university, you know, there's not a lot of 70-year-old guys. Yeah. <laughs> but I also wanted to do uh, The Hairy Ape by Eugene O'Neill. But I'm way beyond that now, too. There were a few things that uh, that I really wanted to do. Uh, maybe, But I did shave... enough that... Uh, yeah, but maybe if you shave the beard, you'll look like you're... The Hairy again. Ape is, is about a guy who's a coal shoveler in uh, a steamship. And it's a very physical role, and it's for a guy who's in his 20s. Uh, and the very first thing that I learned uh, as I was an apprentice was that, one, you don't lie about your abilities, and two, you do parts that are within your range. And, you know, you don't try and do something as a 20-year-old that calls for you to be a 70-year-old, and vice versa. When you're 70, you don't do stuff, you know, that you're supposed to be 20 because right. people know. 
<laughs> sure. <laughs> Going back to the the you know forgetting lines on on stage and being stuck. Are there are there any techniques that you have or or uh, like what's the process that you go through to memorize a big monologue? Well, I like used that? to have a photographic memory. Uh, as I aged, it kind of turned to mush. But uh, that's one of the reasons I don't do a lot of any theater anymore. The uh, I don't know you if you have a grasp of what's supposed to happen and where you're supposed to go, you can eventually find your way back. As I did, you know what seemed like an eternity to me really wasn't that noticeable, probably. But if you know where you're supposed to be going, but you don't have the exact words, then you'll eventually find your way back. Or if you're with some actors on stage, you know they can they can help you, and sure. they'll. they'll Need you back in because ultimately we're all out there together. Right. You know, it's not a matter of I was better than you were, and you know when the stay when the play comes to a halt because somebody dries, you try and get the play moving as fast as you can because the audience doesn't really know who who made the mistake. Right. Yeah. You know, it could be anybody. Right. So you try and keep things going. Um. Is there any? Like you're perform, you're out there. This is you know for stage and theater. You're out there performing the same act over and over and over every night. Is there ever any ad libbing? Like you forget it. You for, you'll forget a line like that. Oh yeah, yeah. It happens and, all the time. <laughs> it happens all the time. You so know, people drop a line and you've got to make it up, and uh, eventually you get back into it. Sure. It's not that huge of a deal. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. All right, um, let's uh, let's jump around here. The next thing I have on my list is uh, Maniac Mansion. <laughs> Another favorite. About. Yeah, I've been uh, watched a bunch of those episodes. They're on YouTube. That's a fun show. I didn't realize it was based on a Lucas Films video, video game. game. Yeah, yeah. Did you know about this, Ray? Oh, I I did not know that it was based off of that. But it's yeah. a, it's a fun little show. Yeah. We even had George Lucas uh, on the show. Really? <laughs> our final our final episode uh, was a giant rap party. And uh, it was dozens and dozens of people. And George Lucas showed up. He was invited, of course. And he was a part of the script. And he actually brought two of the uh, original uh, laser swords onto the set. And we got to play with them, which was kind of neat. <laughs> Like the actual, the actual used? sword, the actual ones that they used on screen. Oh wow! I mean, you know, the, the laser part of it was CGI. Sure, but the actual handle, the solid steel, you know, they weighed a couple of pounds. Wow! And uh, we got to play with those things uh, during the course of shooting. Which yeah, was, that's pretty cool. I mean, when I saw Star Wars, I came out of the theater and I walked the wrong way to go back home. <laughs> I was so stunned. And when I was in university at Baldwin Wallace, I had a professor there that he was teaching theater. And he said, you can tell that you have seen a good production when you walk the wrong way when you leave the theater. (laughs) And I never gave it a second thought until I walked the wrong way going home after Star Wars, just so mesmerized. And then to be able to play with the swords. Yeah. I was only five when that came out. So for you, it was a completely different experience because I hear a lot of people your age say when that ship comes in the very beginning over their head 
it was like a completely just different experience than anything they'd seen oh, yeah. in an opening scene before. Oh yeah. And it, it also depended on uh, some of the uh, extraterrestrial uh, augmentation that you might have participated <laughs> in before you went to see the movie. <laughs> Ray and I Ray and I had a, an episode a few weeks ago. Our guest didn't show up, and we talked about uh, the wild side of Casey and Ray. Um, yes. We know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> And back then, when when did Star when did the original Star Wars come out? Seventy seven, seventy eight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That the, that the, was the heyday. Yeah, the things that you were doing uh, were a lot better than the things we. Oh yeah, well, I started 90s. doing those things in nineteen sixty nine. Holy shit, George! <laughs> that was That's my cool. introduction into the hippie days. I was going to say sixty nine is a pretty big year for uh, stuff like that. Well, that was the year I graduated from high school. Huh. I went to university, and uh, in high school, of course, in St. Ignatius, you know, it was a real mean, there was a lot of discipline. If you had long hair, you got sent to the barber college. <laughs> if it touched your collar or was over your ears, you know, the long arm of the assistant principal would reach out, grab you by the scruff of the neck, pull you in, and say, go to the barber college. And then he'd call them, and you came back looking like you joined the Marine Corps. <laughs> It was something that nobody wanted to experience because then you look so, like a dork for a very long time. <laughs> what did, uh, what, so what did you do right after high school? Oh, I went directly to university. I started at Baldwin Wallace in the theater department, auditioned for the very first play that, uh, that they had and kept myself constantly on stage, took every theater course that they offered. I think you needed, you needed 45 hours to have a major. I graduated with 130 hours Damn. in theater. Wow. I took everything. That's awesome. Everything. I, I couldn't get enough. That's awesome. I just devoured it. So when, I, I know, I've seen you on a motorcycle in a lot of your roles. Oh, uh, um, yeah. When did you get into riding motorcycles? When I was 15. Wow. The guy who lived across the street from me, Roy Channels, had a younger brother who was a member of the Galloping Gooses. I don't know if you remember that, but uh, mm. Hollister, California. The guy sitting on his motorcycle with all the beer bottles underneath him. The movie that was, uh, Marlon Brando's movie was based on that. Okay. And the, the, the club that was uh, represented there was the Galloping Gooses. And this guy had a chopper that was stored in his brother's garage, which I admired every day. And then Roy bought himself a uh, small Honda. And when I was 15, I was admiring that. And one day, I didn't even have a driver's license for a car. And he, uh, he says, take her for a spin. And I'd never ridden a bicycle or a motorcycle in my life. And I fell in love again. You know, the first time I was out on it, I said, well, this is what I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> you were never even on a, a bicycle before? Oh, a bicycle, yeah, oh. but not a motorcycle. Oh, okay. And I so, took out this Honda 260 or whatever it was, and I nearly dumped it. And I go, oh, my God, that's all I need <laughs> is to crash this guy's bike. But uh, I managed to stay upright, and I took it all around Bay Village, Ohio, which was where I lived, and uh, took it back to him. And as soon as I was uh, able, I got a motorcycle myself. My first one was a Honda 750. And I've only owned, uh, I think, six bikes. 
I own two gold wings. No, three gold wings, because I bought one when we were shooting Sinbad in South Africa. And then I had a Harley. And then I had a uh, Honda Shadow, which I just sold last year. I rode that for 23 years. Wow. It's so no, no more... No more motorcycles? Unfortunately, arthritis got the better of me, and uh, my hands are messed up, and my knees are messed up, and uh, I couldn't get on and off as easily as I should. It was kind of an embarrassment. I used to be able to kind of like, you know, uh, the Lone Ranger hops on his horse. You know, I'd fly on the bike and be off, and I had to kind of climb on the thing and my knees didn't work as quickly that if i had to operate the the foot pedals of the shifter and the uh the the brake pedal i wasn't as fast as i should be able to be and so i i posted online the uh a photo of beast with tears in his eyes from x-men from the episode uh beauty and the beast where he has to let his love go for her safety with the caption beast from x-men must sell his bike oh. <laughs> and i sold it in a day <laughs> wow. but it was a very sad thing because it was the first yeah, time i've been without a bike in like 45 years did they ask it, you to autograph it when they bought it no no <laughs> i've autographed bikes before and i said you know yeah. the, i wouldn't really do this i wouldn't want somebody autographing my bike right but the guy, one guy asked me to autograph his Harley, and I did it in paint. Oh, so that's kind of permanent. Yeah. But everybody, was, you know, to each his own. Yeah, going into, so back to where we originally started, the, your manager said uh, Beast. The, I was never an X-Man cartoon fan. I, did, I had no idea that you were the voice of uh, Beast. And... Um, you know, listening to all these uh, interviews and the the podcasts and the interviews that you've done over the last couple of years, you really love going to these comic cons now. Yes. And a lot of these, a lot of people are fans of the X Men series. Oh yes, they are. I just got back from one in Grand Rapids. I find that these are so much fun because we never met the fans. When you're doing this kind of work, you're in a studio by yourself. Usually, you do your recordings. And then you go home. And during the time that we did uh, the first series of X-Men, we didn't even know how popular the show was. They never told us that they had mail bins filled, lining a hallway in, the, in their studio in L.A. with fan mail. We were just happy that we got renewed each year and we had a job for the following year because we did uh, five seasons of that. In the first couple of seasons, uh, I was doing Maniac Mansion and then doing X-Men at the same time. And the studios were around the corner from each other, you know, maybe about a mile and a half apart. So during breaks in the uh, filming of Maniac Mansion, dressed as a four-year-old, I'd have to, I would hop on my motorcycle and I would drive through downtown Toronto to the studio, do my recording for X-Men and then zip back and finish filming uh, Maniac Mansion. So let's go back to Maniac Mansion. Yeah, we we never finished talking about that. You worked some. You worked with some uh, great people on that show. Oh, man. Joe Flaherty. Joe well, not Flaherty. just Joe Flaherty, but we yeah. had Jose Ferrer as a yeah. guest. 
Dave Thomas, Martin yeah. Short, David Cronenberg, Andrea Martin, and uh, the missing link I put in there. The yes, yes, the old wrestlers. I yeah. remember these guys from when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah. The reason I put the missing link in there is um, Ed Ferreira. He was a he. This is when you went to Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Um, yeah. Do you know Ed Ferreira? Ed Ferreira. He was a writer on that show. Did you ever meet him? No. 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 He was um, our our fans are, will know this. Uh, he was a writer also for the WCW and WWF, and was friends with uh, Vince Russo. So, like, I always argue with people about this because, like, I was a pro wrestler twenty years ago. They hire writers to write their storylines. Like, it's not. <laughs> I always have this argument with people, and that's the perfect example. He was a he was a writer for Honey I Shrunk the Kids. And well, we had went, went a wrestling for... episode on that too. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. The uh, Brett and uh, Owen Hart oh. were guests on that show, and there was a whole wrestling episode <clears throat> where uh, they came to uh, town to do a wrestling demonstration, and uh, they got hurt because they were demonstrating stuff to me and Peter Scolari, and uh, we had to take their place in the ring. So we did an episode where we had to, they trained us on how to do all these things. And I have never hurt so much in my entire life <laughs> as after doing that episode. I was black and blue. I mean, I can really, even though it's kind of choreographed, yeah. when, when you hit that mat, it's hard. Yeah, It bounces a little bit. It's, <laughs> it's softer than concrete. But it's hard. Yep. <laughs> and when you go down, you know, even though you're doing the flat back and trying to break your spread out your yep, your fall, you know, when they're when they're clotheslining you <laughs> and you're at full pin, you know, it's you do that six times in a row for a yeah. take. And yeah. each take, you know, each move that you did, okay, now we're coming in for the close-ups. So in a regular bout, you might do that once or twice. And then you go back to your dressing room. We right. did that all day long. <laughs> and it, hitting the, the mat like that, I must have done it like 25 times from all different angles, close-ups, wide shots. <laughs> this what is was the it thing like that, working with the what was it like working with uh, Brett and Owen? Oh, it's fabulous. Well, I worked with Brett uh, on uh Sinbad as well. He was a guest on that show. Very cool. He was playing a Viking. Okay. Yeah, I didn't now, know that. Now I got to find that because I yeah. love the Heart Foundation. Well, yeah, it's gonna... uh, I can't remember the name of the episode, but it was on. We only did two seasons of The Adventures of Sinbad, and he was in the second second season. And there was a show with Vikings, and he was the head of the Vikings, and he was fabulous to work with. A really nice guy. And then we got to work with him uh, again on Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Because the same executive producer and head writer, Ed Naha, wrote both shows. And he's okay. the one that brought me in from Sinbad to be on Honey. Was Honey, I Shrunk the Kids filmed in Canada? Yes, also? it was filmed yeah. in Calgary. Okay, yeah, that's where the, pretty sure that's where the hearts are from, Calgary. Yes, yes. Talking about that show, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, I bought the first, you can, you can buy them on, I think, amazon prime or somewhere i i got the first two seasons i didn't realize you weren't in the first season i wasn't um, in the first yeah you were in the second i was in the season. second and third yeah great show did did rick moranis turn that 
down or what was the I story don't know if it that? was even yeah. offered to him oh really because they tried like watching it they really tried to make Peter Scolari look as much like him as possible because there's some I mean there's some parts there's in a, it where there's a lot of similarities though between the two already oh, I guess sure. so I did I never saw the similarity well, yeah well their, I mean their acting there's... style in my opinion is is well the style similar. of acting is also dictated by what they're giving you to work with yeah, like him on uh, New Heart, Bosom Buddies, you know, that style of uh, acting kind of reminds me a little bit of, uh, you know, Honey, I Shrunk the Kid style. So I, I kind of, I liked him in the role. Oh, I did that. too. He yeah. was the nicest guy to work with. Just fabulous. He was a very generous actor. Very precise. It was just such a joy to work with him. Everybody on that show was a joy. And the funny thing is that I was at a Comic-Con in Portland, Oregon. And uh, this is just before the pandemic hit. And I'm at my table and this guy uh, shows up there. He's got a beard. He says, hey, George, how you doing? I look at him. I'm sorry. I, I, I don't know you. He says, Thomas, Thomas Decker. I was a little eight-year-old boy on Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, and now he's 28 years old. <laughs> Full beard. And... Oh, wow. Yeah. And was he a fan, or was he – I mean, was he just He had a table. He was there. Oh, he had a table? He was signing oh, cool. as well. That's cool. Nice. Um, all right, so the next thing I had in my notes was a Christmas Horror Story, but we already talked about that. Uh when we had Patrika Darbo on the show, um, she's done a few voice acting things as well. And she told us a story about uh, one time on Rango, how um, they had like a big, a choreographer come in and have like this big dance number between all of the voice actors for the show, for the mm-hmm. movie. Um, has, have you ever experienced anything like that or is it pretty like basic stuff where it's, you're, you're in a a recording room and. Well, we were only together as a group in the first season for a few of the episodes and we did it very much like you do radio drama. Everybody was in front of their own mic and they tried to uh, coordinate it so that uh, we could interact with each other. But that was in 1996 no 92 so the technology was not as advanced as it is today and there was <laughs> so much feed from everybody's mic that they, they had to shut down everybody else's mic turn on the one mic that was in use and then shut that down turn on the next mic of the so it became so time consuming that it kind of defeated the purpose of being able to react to one line and feed it to the other and the spontaneity was just not really uh, there so they recorded everybody individually and if there was a scene where there were two people or three people interacting then you'd maybe have a smaller group but when there were five or six people they did everybody individually now do you like that better i mean do you like when people are when you're well i loved doing radio drama and i did tons and tons of that from the classics doing Shakespeare to series for years at the CBC and also for the BBC, they came over and did uh, blues for Mr. Charlie, which was a, a racial uh, drama. And uh, Alison Seeley Smith was in that as well, who plays storm. 
it was just so rewarding to be able to do that because you didn't really have to go out on stage, but you had the same kind of payoff as you did on stage, being able to do the classics. I imagine it's easier to working with someone rather than just reading off a, a line. Well, it is like, because you kind of have to imagine what that person would have said right. and how they said it to give the right response. Right. So the way we're recording it now is uh, we're giving three different reads to each line so that there's a variety of uh, a response because we're not hearing the way the other actor is giving the line. You yeah. go in and you just read your lines and imagine how it would sound that what the other person's line would sound like. Right. There's a movie, I'm not sure if you've seen it, with uh, Sam Elliott called The Hero. Have you seen no, that? I have seen, seen that? that. It's a really good movie, but he's a voiceover actor. And it's, there's, it's, I always get a chuckle out of the one part. He's, um, he does a commercial for barbecue sauce and they just have him read this same line over oh, yeah. and oh, over. Yeah. And it, and he's not changing anything. And they're like, all right, one more time with just a little more uh, pep. <laughs> <laughs> and he reads it basically the same way. And then they're like, all right, that's great. <laughs> yep. Well, I have a story, a couple of stories, actually, about that. We had uh, a very famous voiceover guy called Henry Raymer, who was like the top Canadian voice actor. And uh, he would only give you so many takes. Then they'd go home. And uh, he did a commercial and... Uh, the first take was superb. So they had it. Off he went. So the uh, the client listens to it and says, uh, well, that's fabulous. But I'd like to hear the other takes. <laughs> so the engineer didn't know what to do. Henry Raymer, he's long gone. So he did a continuous loop of the one take, <laughs> gave it to the guy, and the guy agonized, agonized over it for hours. And he says, you know... I think I like take number three the best. <laughs> okay. So, you know, you got, and with me, I once did a commercial for uh, a toothpaste and uh, the original commercial had the word new in it and it had been out for a couple of years already. So they brought me back into the studio to do another commercial minus the word new. And I arrived about 15 minutes early and the engineer says to me, you know, all I got to do is press one button and the word new disappears and you got the same commercials that have been on the air for two years. So he did that. I never did a recording. And I sat there and waited for the clients to arrive and he played them the commercial, which was the one that had been on the air for two whole years. And again, they said, well, that's fabulous, but we'd like to hear the other takes. So I sat there for an hour and a half and did take after take after take minus the word new and I think they used the original commercial that would been on the oh air. For... So it's, that's that's doing voiceovers. <laughs> wow! And he have you ever to... heard the uh, the Orson Welles? He did no. a commercial, uh, a voiceover for peas, and uh, he ends up storming out of the studio. No amount of money is worth this. You people are bores. You're maniacs. I wouldn't direct any actor in the world the way you did. This is not worth any money. And he storms out of the studio. <laughs> and it became a famous meme that has played all over. Every actor in the world has heard that. Orson Welles storming out of the studio for pee commercial. <laughs> That's great.
All right, George. I always uh, go to IMDb to look for things, and they have me much older than I really am. Oh, really? Really? Oh, yes. That's all. I'm not a whatever sign they have me. I wasn't born in 1947. I'd be 75 years old by now. Oh, well, how old are you? Well, I'm 70. I'm going to be 71 in February. Okay. All right. But uh, I've tried to correct it, but it still keeps coming back. So I figure, well, what the hell? I'll be 75. They want me to be 75. I'll be 75. <laughs> That's just acting. Yeah. <laughs> no, IMDb is hard Prevagen. You need Prevagen. You know? <laughs> uh, yeah, IMDb is hard to change. I'm I'm working with someone else to try and get a few things changed. So that's why I'm going to ask you these questions, because there's a trivia section there on the IMDb page. And I would like to know, is it true that you're a stamp collector? Yes. You are a stamp collector. And your grandfather was actually a stamp designer. Yes. He designed uh, Hungary's second airmail issue in 1927. Wow. (laughs) So yeah, uh, he also designed Hungary's coins from 1926 to 1944. Wow, the small denomination coins. He was an architect and an artist. He also, in his later years, his final project was painting a panorama from dawn till dusk of the Grand Canyon. Wow, it is six feet high and 333 feet long. Wow. And where's that at? That's in my brother's basement. Wow. And we don't know what to do with it. Is it, it is what, so massive? So is it like, is it on a roll or what? Is it? Is no, it it's on individual frames. Oh, wow. Yes. It's been exhibited several times in Cleveland. And uh, the family has approached everybody and their dog about, you know, it's free. Display it. <laughs> Yeah. Save it, whatever, but we don't know what to do with it. Because wow. my brother and I are the last ones in the family. We never had kids of our own. I have stepkids and step-grandchildren, and my brother never had any kids of his own, so we're the last of the booze line. And, uh, geez, when we, when we exit, uh, I don't know what's going to happen to it. Wow. He's been trying to find a place for it. Well, if anyone out there knows any, anything <laughs> that we could do with yeah. that. Uh... Well, it's it's really beautiful work. Yeah. I mean, uh, he was meticulous. Well, yeah, he visited the I mean, Grand Canyon the, numerous times. He was times. designing stamps and, yeah. and uh, coins. Well, he designed the stamps and coins when he was in his early 20s. Sure. That's a, that's amazing. That's crazy. All I did was get drunk in my 20s, and he's no, making me coins too. and stamps. <laughs> <laughs> But he took his art very seriously. Wow. That's pretty cool. So you mentioned your stepson. Another thing, or that you you have stepkids. Another thing in your IMDb trivia page is uh, that your son, or that your stepson, Derek, is a rock musician. Well, he is, but he's he's my former stepson. His mother passed away. Ah. So I, I remarried. And I have uh, 11 grandchildren through wow. my wife that I've been married to now for uh, 12 years. Wow. We've been together since 2007. Uh, my first wife passed away in 2005. Derek now uh, does the music for slot machines. 
Oh, really? Yeah, he's the musical director for a company that builds slot machines, and uh, he does their music. He's also got a studio, and he does recordings. He's a brilliant guitar player. That's crazy. That's like a job like that I have. Like I never knew it existed when I started <laughs> the job. Like I never would think that that was a job that existed. Making every music slot for machine slot- has got its own music. That's crazy. That's yeah. cool. And he's made a totally. He's got a very successful career at it. Very cool. So that's All another right. thing that IMDb that I haven't been able to correct is to update that that I I've remarried and that I have another family. And uh, no, you'd think that they would have to be accurate with that shit yeah, if they're going to have no, it online. It, nothing is accurate on the internet. <laughs> no, <laughs> nothing. I mean, you can't take anything for face value. You can't believe anything you read. Yeah, that's true. That's what we're here for. Yeah, we're doing our best to get it out there. Yeah, and I'm trying to, you know, tell the truth whenever I get a chance. I love doing these interviews because I'm a chatterbox. That's great. And I've got so many stories about uh, the experiences in theater and film. Everybody says I should write a book. Yeah, absolutely. But a lot of these people are still alive. You know? <laughs> and we we weren't always the best behaved people in the world <laughs> back in the old days and yeah, but those are the best stories. Well, of course they are. But, you know, well, I drove such and such an actor to jail when he was. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> because he was drunk and played uh, dodgems with the car, cop cars. <laughs> True story. Not me, but a very close friend of mine did that. And he got weekends. <laughs> Just weekends? Well, yeah, Just... because he was a, an actor, a fairly well-known one. And uh, he was also, uh, he had a guarantee from a, a well-known agent, and uh, he also got his life very well back together again. But that, that was yeah. during our wild years when, you know, the and, 80s and, were, things were things pretty were little, rampant. Things were a little different back then, you know. You could do a lot more and get a slap on the wrist back then, or just... Well, a, also, a lot a of the things on. now that producers are firing people for is what producers used to do to make sure that you could work overtime. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. We talked to Ed Begley jr. A couple of weeks ago and he was talking about how at one, at one time, if you didn't do Coke with the director, you would get fired. Now, yep. if you do Coke, you're, you get fired. <laughs> yeah, that's right. They'll make you pee in a bottle. And if you test, <laughs> then you're out. Yeah. But back then, if you showed, like, oh, man, I'm getting so tired. Here, come here, you know, and we'll get a few more hours out of you. <laughs> I have, a, yeah, well, someone that we've interviewed several times and that I'm not going to mention his name, but he was telling me a story one time where they would they would give it to you, and as you're doing it, they would say, and it's not habit-forming. Yeah. <laughs> well, this was the belief, you know, yeah. it's not harmful. Yeah. And then uh, so many people lost their lives, lost lost their families, careers, houses. Yeah. Yeah, I I told this a bunch of times, but you know, since we're talking about it, on the set of North Dallas 40, Bo Svensson told us that they were they were spending $15,000 a week on cocaine. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a lot of blow. It is, it is, and I've been on movies where that happened too. I'm not going to mention them because, again, as I said, these people are still alive, and uh, I know them. 
<laughs> and they know me. Yeah. Uh, Ray, before we get into the fan questions, do you have uh, you have anything else for George? The only thing I would say is uh, it's weird because some of the voice actors say they like to be in a room with everybody. And like you said, your experiences, they just make you do take after take after take. Given your preference, if you could do voice, you know, the voice work all together, do you think it would be a lot easier if they could figure out the microphone problem? Well, no. I mean, they probably know how to figure it out now because the technology has advanced so much in 27 years. But uh, it's so quick. Like, uh, I'm in and out of the studio in a half an hour, and I've done two episodes. Oh, wow. They just give me my script, and I do every line three times, three different takes. And uh, thank you very much, and go home. Occasionally, they give me some direction and say, can you tweak this here, tweak that there? And then again, I give them three takes in a row. Do you think that's because you've done the character for a while, though? Well, yeah, easier. part of it is is the experience. I mean, if you try that with a, a somebody who's never done it before, you might not get the same result. But somebody who's been doing voiceovers for nearly 50 years and has done so many cartoons, you've got the hang of it and you know what they want. And also, I know Beast. Yeah, that's so right. So it was not that difficult to find him again after so many years. Just listen to the old episodes, watch a few of the old episodes, and you're back in the groove. Nice. All right. We we have a lot of uh, fan questions for you, George. Um, I tried to avoid X-Men as much as I could because uh, I know you always talk about that. I know you love talking about it, but we, we did get a lot of uh, X-Men fan questions. So that's Well, that's why fine. Was... This is what I talk about at the cons. Yeah. I'm as much as I'm allowed to talk about it. Sure. Because we haven't uh, premiered yet, but I can talk about the old show. Wait, is there is there something new coming out? You don't know? No, they renewed us. Oh shit! Yes, really? we've already done one season. Oh wow! And we're going to premiere next year. Awesome! And we've been yeah, renewed I... for a second season already. That's awesome! Yeah, I had this no was idea. announced at Comic Con in San Diego this year. Great! So we've been Very recording cool. X Men. All year long. Oh, that's awesome. We got our jobs back. So, you know, it doesn't <laughs> very happen very often that uh, 25, 27 years later, you walk back into your old job. Yeah. And uh, is it is it still at the same studios? Or? It was in the exact same studio that we filmed the original <laughs> or the sh- recorded the original one. That's cool. It now, was tell like, us the story about that because that, that's a cool story too, right? It's... <clears throat> it was mind-blowing. When I first came to Canada... I rented a house on Ontario Street, 49 Ontario. It was an old Victorian house that leaned. When we went down in the basement, we found that the foundation was being held up by a stack of bricks with no mortar. And we, 200 bucks a month, three actors. You each had a room. The place was ramshackle. It was in a horrible neighbor rundown. And then they uh, leveled the house and they built this uh, recording studio there. And its address is still 49 Ontario Street. And when I walked into the studio, I said, you realize we're recording right now in my old uh, kitchen. Because <laughs> this would have were exactly where my kitchen would have been. So it's a, a, a triple 
uh, deja vu for me because I'm not only back at the same address where I lived, the very first place that I lived in when I came to Canada, but it's also where we recorded the original X-Men. Yeah, that's pretty so cool. So it was one of those mind-blowing things where, holy mackerel, you know, this is, <laughs> there's just so much here that uh, it blows your mind. Yeah. I related uh, it to a uh, an acid flashback that was, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever get those? No, and I feel ripped off. I do. Yeah. Occasionally when I'm sitting on the, like a case, uh, not to get too graphic, but occasionally when I'm sitting on the toilet and I look at the floor, it will occasionally start to. I saw snakes there one time too. When I was in university, <laughs> we had a tile floor and I was in there for hours watching the snakes coiling around my feet. And my buddies came in and said, you all right? You all right? What, what's happening in there? I said, man, it's the snakes, man. The snakes. <laughs> There are all there's thousands of snakes in here, dude. <laughs> when Ray and I recorded that episode a few weeks back about the wild side of Casey and Ray, I mentioned to Ray about how weird it is. I can remember almost every single trip, acid trip that I've done, like vividly, but I can't remember but I can't remember last week. Well, <laughs> like, that's on the same way. I saw the Grateful Dead on acid. Nice. I watched my uh, the president of my university's face melt. <laughs> we were having a, a a big Greek weekend, you know, where all the fraternities were having their games, and all of us hippies went there, and we dropped, and we're watching all this. And I was in the theater at the time, and I just done a play, and I guess the president of the university had seen it, and. Uh, I'm standing there and I said, holy mackerel, he's coming toward me. <laughs> I said, oh, my God, he, I, he wants to talk to me. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> and somehow I got it together and I think I put two words together in a sentence and everything and it kind of, and then he walked away. And I went, Whoa, I guess I pulled that off. <laughs> but, and I had to talk to my mother, too. Oh, wow. Yes. I took my brother to see the Grateful Dead, and he didn't do any, but I did. And uh, she was up waiting for him when I brought him home. And he saw it and said, well, good night. I'm going to bed. And both he went, and I had to go and talk to my mom and watch her face melt for a while. Oh. <laughs> so oh, we had some terrifying. experiences. That's terrifying. <laughs> well, for us at that time, everything was an adventure. Yeah. So you would put yourself into situations where you could have new experiences. And I did a workshop with Cafe La Mama. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but they're the ones that put hair on the stage. Okay. So it was hippie theater. Mm -hmm. And they, they encouraged a lot of experimentation during the workshops. So we tried to put ourselves into different situations and see what would happen and how we reacted to it. Not necessarily doing performances on acid because that was kind of like really out there. Yeah. But uh, you try and put yourself into life situations that were unusual that you would say, well, I wonder what this will be like. And I never had a bad experience, but I still remember most of them. Yeah. Isn't that, isn't that crazy though? Like, yeah. I mean, most of them took place at concerts because yeah. you'd go see all these psychedelic shows and, uh, you know, the Grateful Dead would play forever. Yeah. So how, how many times like, have you seen the Dead, George? Unfortunately. I wish oh, I had really? more, but I did see a lot of great shows back then. Yeah. 
We saw so what David are some Bowie. other great, what are what are some other concerts that you saw back then? Well, I saw David Bowie, oh, uh, wow. uh, Jethro Tull. Think of Frank Zappa, of course. Nice, <laughs> very uh, cool, awesome. Yeah, I was a big uh, right out of like. Not right out of high school, but after my wrestling phase is when I started getting into the uh, drug scene and the Grateful Dead scene. And I, I never got to see Jerry. Uh, he had already passed away, but that, yeah, rub it in my face. Yeah. <laughs> I saw him, I think, in 1970 or 71. Yeah, that's awesome. Very cool. Very cool, George. All right, we're going to get into the fan questions here now. Uh, ben Durham would like to know, what is your favorite line reading as Beast? Well, there are several. I actually have a list that I take to Comic-Cons. And I have it right here, seeing as I just came back. And when people ask me to sign, sometimes they say, put one of your favorite uh, quotes there. But the most famous one that, that I like is, all my stars and garters. That's his great exclamation. This is another, This is just before he's about to lay waste to somebody. Your anger at the inexorable alienation of late 20th century life is sadly misdirected. And then he wails on the guy. <laughs> In these times, these awful, fractious times, we are all we have left. And without trust, the world can be a lonely place. And again, another one of my favorites is when he's being uh, directed by this lady. I can't remember the episode. But she calls him Blue Boy. And he says, my name is Mr. McCoy, madam, not Blue Boy. <laughs> That's got to be my favorite. Nice. Uh, all right. And then Jeremy Ritter would like to know, did you ever think that the X-Men cartoon would get a reboot? So obviously no. Jeremy has hit a, heard about the reboot. No. Uh, when I started doing Comic-Cons just before the epidemic, people asked us, would we be open to it? And all of us said, absolutely. I mean, we would love to see this come back. We never thought it would come to fruition. But we were working with the people who originated the uh, the show, Eric and Julia Lewald, And they were the ones that brought us into Comic-Con because they wrote a book called, uh, and I have it previously on X-Men. <laughs> and they decided that uh, they were going to try and get in touch with as many of us as possible and have a reunion at the uh, New Brownfells Comic-Con in Texas. And they got a hold of four of us, and we went down there for the launch of their book. And that's how we started doing the Comic-Cons. And you like doing those, the Comic-Cons? Oh, they're so much fun. I mean, meeting the fans, we never knew how popular the show was. And it wasn't until we started doing the Comic-Cons and people come up to your desk and they say, they're actually speechless. And they say, your show is what saved my life. Uh, because most of the people who really were X-Men fans were, were disenfranchised. Uh, I mean, myself included, you know, as a young guy, uh, I came from immigrant parents who didn't speak English. They were refugees from Eastern Europe. And so there was that. I didn't even speak English until I was four. Oh, wow. Because my parents spoke Hungarian at home. And uh, I was also overweight, so I was subject to a lot of bullying. 
And coming from Eastern Europe meant that uh, I got it a lot from my dad fought your dad in the war. Well, no, he didn't because my dad was too young to be in the war. But I came from the country that they had fought, not Germany, but Hungary. And so it was kind of a difficult time for me being a fat kid in school and also being dressed like a dork because European parents wouldn't allow you to wear jeans and uh, other fashionable things in school because it made you look like a farmer. So I had to wear dress pants and dress shirts to school, which, of course, also meant ridicule and being a fat kid dressed as a dork never helped. So I identified a lot with, you know, being different and. I compensated uh, in my high school years by being in uh, theater and using my uh, my size to my advantage. And instead of it being a liability, it became an asset because I was able to play character roles. So I transformed something that was a disadvantage into an advantage. And that's also a word of advice that if you do have these things, find a way to make it a positive thing as opposed to something that drags you down. But yeah. I remember not wanting to go to school because I was afraid of getting bullied, afraid of having to go into a fight. Because also as a big kid, you got challenged all the time. They wanted to see if you, they could take it, which got me into trouble because at a couple of points in time, I, I did defend myself. And uh, being bigger meant I was the one that got in trouble, all right. which was another valuable lesson, was that I learned that uh, in the end, You're the one that's going to get blamed for it because you're bigger and they think that you're the bully. And all you were doing was defending yourself and standing your ground. Right. So after that, I decided that I was going to develop the ability to talk my way out of things and to defuse situations, which also came in handy as a as a bouncer in bars, because that's something that I did to supplement my income in the early days of theater. (laughs) I was too big to be a waiter. I didn't fit between the tables. But, boy, I could I could. I could police a floor in a bar. <laughs> so, did you ever get into any sports? Do you ever play football or anything? In uh, very briefly. I hated it. It was yeah. terrible. I didn't like running. And there was a lot of running involved. <laughs> and uh, I remember our high school coach tried to get me into football, and I, I wanted to go into theater. And in gym class, he kept threatening me. He was also the head of our local draft board. So as I was in the gym class, waddling my way around the, uh, the floor there. He says, Hey, Booza, I got a pair of jungle boots just waiting for you. <laughs> so, of course that was the peak of non. Right. So, but you were, I mean, you're going to other schools then. And well, like... I went to university, but then when they switched over to, uh, the, uh, lottery, uh, the system was that if you kept your two S deferment, as soon as you graduated, you were gone. Uh, university degree or not, you you used up your deferment to go to school, and then you were uh, drafted. So when they started the lottery, I threw my name in, and I was 1A for a year and a half in school, took away my deferment, and took my chances with the lottery. And they stopped drafting, honest to God, one number before they got to me. Oh, wow. So, so that's uh, why I don't buy lottery tickets, because I won the lottery of a lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> So did the bullying stop when you started in theater? I, uh, or... Eventually, it stopped in high school totally. It was yeah, an elementary yeah. school. That it oh, happened. okay, okay. But in high school, by that time, 
there were bigger nerds around than me. Yeah, sure. Um, all right. Well, I feel terrible that you got picked on as a kid. Hey, let me get this this question in, Casey. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Chaz Kangas wants to know, were there any lines of dialogue as Beast that you were surprised made it into a, a kid show? No, not at all. Because we knew right away that this was not strictly a kid show. This was a show about disenfranchised people. And it was not never designed to be a kid show, strictly. It was meant adults could enjoy it just as much as kids did. And uh, it was Fox Kids that bought it. But the writers and the producers tried very hard not to make it a typical cartoon for kids, to make it a cartoon that would universally appeal to all people, and especially all people who felt like they were disenfranchised. I missed it. It was on for years. Yeah. It, it was, and even now, it, it's still on on Disney+. Plus. Yeah, I'm definitely going to go check it out, especially since there's uh, the reboot coming. Uh, looking forward to that. We have, uh, I think, one more here about uh, X-Men. Gabriel Ricard would like to know, how did you feel about Beast's weird storyline in season one? Well, I was kind of disappointed because I ended up in jail. <laughs> But uh, the storyline actually paid off because uh, he made a very strong point when he let his other uh, X-Men out of jail and then he decided to have his day in court. You know, he bends the bars and everybody else escapes and then he bends the bars back and he says, I'm staying. And he's hanging upside down reading uh, a book on civil disobedience because he wanted to make a point. And this is where he reprises that famous speech from uh, Merchant of Venice. When you prick us, do we not bleed? And uh, he makes his point. And he actually walks out of court a free man. And after that, <clears throat> Beast became a much more integral part of the uh, of the story. And originally, he was only going to be in a couple of episodes. And after the uh, the arc of the very first season... They put Beast as a major player for the rest of the uh, four seasons after that, and it, which I was extremely grateful for because I probably wouldn't be here today if I only did a couple of episodes. Right. So when they when they hire you on as um, a voice actor for Beast in that very in the first season of the you know going back, do they say this is going to be three episodes or are you hired on for this full season and you don't no, know they what? hire you once one show at a time one show at a time each show has its own contract and you don't know how many you're going to do wow and is it still the same way we do get a contract for each individual episode yeah wow huh but we yeah. we already know we're coming back for another season sure huh so, that's yeah i guess is that so like people don't know that the, well, we know, have NDA. Not to tell very much about it. I'm repeating what's already been released by Marvel and Disney at the uh, San Diego Comic Con, and that's that they have renewed it for another season. That we have completed the recording for the first season, and that uh, the show will pick up where we left off in 1997. That's why they even call it uh, X-Men '97. Awesome. Very cool. So that much has been released. That much I can say, but uh, not anymore. That's it. 
Sure. Which is good because that way people will be interested and when the time comes, they'll all tune in, which we want. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's nothing worse than a trailer that gives away the best parts of a movie. Well, of course. So. Well, sometimes that's what that's all there is in the show. <laughs> you yeah. Know, the best parts of the show you've already seen and you see the whole hum for the rest of it. But yeah. uh, that's not the case with us. I mean, I, I'm very pleased with the writing on this new show. And then when I was reading the script, I felt like I was right back. 25 years ago reading awesome. the next episode from where we left off i actually had to refresh my memory because i have all the episodes still in a binder on my bookshelf oh really i kept them yes very cool all my the wife scripts. thinks that i'm a horrible hoarder but <laughs> yeah. there are things that i keep i say you know one day maybe this might be worth something or maybe sure. one day i would like to look at it <laughs> and i remember yeah. when i got the part of x-men uh it was pitched as Project X, so it didn't even have a name. They were just auditioning people for a Project X. But I read X-Men comics when I was a kid. <laughs> and I remember when, when it came out, because I used to read Superman. And I saw the uh, X-Men comic right next to it when it first came out. And I go, whoa, this is interesting. And I read it, and I said, well, this is pretty good. So when I read the audition sides, I went, Project X. I said, this is X-Men. <laughs> And it was like one of those, again, holy mackerel, you know, it was, it was like watching Star Wars. And all of a sudden you're auditioning for the Ewoks, which is another series that I did. And again, that was one of those mind blowing experiences that I, this is one of the movies that blew my mind. And now I'm auditioning to be the animated version of an Ewok. <laughs> so that when an X-Men came around, I said, I used to read this comic book and and now I'm reading to be the guy that does the voice for it. I mean, you know, all my stars and garters, you know, <laughs> this is amazing. Very cool. So when they, when they're, when you're recording the voice for the series, like it's been picked up for the first series, first season, second season, uh, you're recording the voice voiceovers. Do they come in and do the animation after that? Oh yeah. They animate to the voice. Oh, okay. Because the hardest thing to do is to to dub animation. When the uh, the animes from Japan come over, I did a lot of those, and I dubbed them. And those are painful. Because trying to recreate the same mouth movements for a different language. Oh. You know, we might say it in in three seconds in English, and yet the Japanese will take ten seconds to say it, or vice versa. Right. <laughs> so you're you're still talking after the guy's mouth has stopped moving or you've already said your line and the guy's mouth is still moving so again in the beginning this was all done to the screen and you had to work it out on your own and then later when the technology advanced they actually had cues uh, computer computerized cues to each one so that it was more accurate in, in the mouth movements but the very first uh, dubbing that we did was extremely painful. But I did Beyblade. Uh, uh, what, what was it called? Uh, Knights of the Knights of the Zodiac. Uh, the uh, the Zodiac one was the one that had the more elaborate cues, and it was much easier to do. But in Beyblade, we were trying to match mouth movements without the uh, the same computerized cues. So you're watching the cartoon and trying to voice it yes. as it's happening. Yeah. 
Jesus. <laughs> Did you ever have a meltdown and just start throwing shit around the studio? Oh, no, no, <laughs> no. I've had meltdowns. I've thrown things. <laughs> but not in voice. On on camera, there have been situations where uh, I lost it. I once hit my uh, makeup artist with a muffin by accident. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but nothing nothing that would hurt yeah <laughs> it was on sinbad and uh i was on a very strict diet and i was on some horrible diet pills prescribed by my doctor which was uh fenfen and uh very much like steroids make a lot of bodybuilders go crazy fenfen was a very dangerous drug and he sent word down to the studio in south africa where we were filming he says tell booza to throw this shit away he says, because it, it, it messes you up. It can really screw your lungs up and you can die. So I stopped taking them. But again, it, it makes you kind of edgy. And so when I didn't get the breakfast that I wanted, I, I kind of heaved it. And at the very same moment, my makeup artist stepped out of his makeup trailer and a bran muffin bounced off of his head. <laughs> and all he could say was, oh, dear, George is having a wobbly. <laughs> oh that's great <laughs> all right uh george i'm i have one more uh fan question here for you and then i'm gonna let ray take over Corey cronk would just like to say uh tell him that a christmas horror horror story is a new classic of the subgenre, and he may find it funny that my college buddies were hit with a cease and desist order for touring with their heavy metal band named a quest for fire <laughs> well there was another uh, eventful movie where was that one filmed at all over the world uh the first part of it uh was filmed in uh alberta in dinosaur park and then we flew to cathedral grove in uh, british columbia and then we went to northern Scotland, and then to Kenya, and then to northern Ontario. Wow! So that was that was a lot of traveling. What this this goes back to my uh, when we were talking about the motorcycles, also because I travel for work, also, and I know you've traveled like everywhere. What's your most favorite place that you've been? Oh, South Africa. South Africa. Marall, yes. When I first did Quest for Fire, and we were shooting in Kenya. I had already been riding a motorcycle, and I thought, boy, wouldn't this be a fabulous place to ride? You know, it's always summertime. The roads are mostly in good condition, at least the highways. And uh, I thought, boy, this would be a great place to ride a bike. And then when years later, like 16 years later, I got Sinbad, and we were in South Africa, which is a lot more developed than Kenya, and the roads were even better there. I bought a bike. I bought an old beat-up uh, Goldwing for 1500 bucks, And uh, the local guys fixed it up for me. Uh, and I rode it around for a couple of years and had a wonderful time. I mean, uh, the experience is there. You know, riding around in Canada, you see moose occasionally. I've seen uh, deer and all kinds of other local animals. But there, I'm tooling down the highway and i ran over a puff adder another time i was uh going what, down what, the coastal highway and the what colony is a of puff baboons adder? a puff adder is a deadly poisonous snake 
Oh, okay. Uh Like, if it bites you, kiss your ass goodbye, because there's no venom, anti-venom for it, and uh, you got about three minutes. Very, very deadly snake. So another day, I'm driving down the coastal highway, and there's an entire colony of baboons that have taken over the road. And they're sitting in the middle of the highway. So I have to slow down to, like, the speed that you would take a driving test going around pylons, going around baboons. Jesus. And I was very worried because they like to hop on vehicles. I had one on the roof of my car one time that I couldn't get rid of. And I said, all I need is one to drop on the, the back of the bike because they're a fierce animal. They will they could tear your ass off. Jesus. They're omnivores, and uh, they are like six times stronger than any man. So I was very afraid, but they didn't even move. And I made a lot of noise because my bike had pipes about this long. Flames shot out of it. That's how close it was to the manifold. And, so you uh, bought the motorcycle in yeah. over there? Yeah, in Cape Town. And then I got rid of it uh, when the show was over. The That's guy who was cool. my stunt man bought it off me. I gave him a good deal on it. And uh, he ended up buying it and gave it to his son. How did that work with uh, dri- like a, a driver's license? Well, there? I had you an just... international driver's license. You were okay. allowed to drive down there with any kind of a license as long as you were valid. Okay. And the fact that uh, one of the guys in the club that fixed my bike was also on the uh, DOT. I had personalized license plates. So it was, uh, How does that work? Are you, a, are you still a citizen of the United States also? Yeah. Yeah, so you're a dual citizen, so yeah, oh, that's cool. Cool. Hmm. So I, I work in both both countries. Uh, I work under SAG. I work under Actra. Is Actra the cat the Canada the Canadian version of the SAG? Canadian version of SAG? Yeah. Okay. And I I remember uh, uh, someone we talked to before. Um, they said that they do all union work. That they is that the same. Oh, absolutely. That... I refuse to do non-union work. And There's why a big, is that? Uh, well, why? Because first of all, you can get drummed out of the union. And right now I'm collecting my pension. Okay. So I don't want to be drummed out of the union. And I got health benefits and life insurance and all this stuff. And I've never worked non-union. That was my biggest goal. As soon as you can, join the union. Because back in the 70s, unless you were in the union, you didn't really get professional work. Gotcha. And now that everybody's gone the cheap route and they want to bypass the union, commercials are trying to circ- uh, circumvent the union. And uh, they're offering uh, actors who are union members under the table work. I refuse to do it, but not only because I think that it's uh, uh, immoral, but also because if you're recognizable, you know, I mean, I've been in the sure. business for so long and I have a, not that it's better than anybody else's, but people recognize my voice when they hear it. Sure. And they all of a sudden pop up on a non-union commercial is uh, inviting trouble. So I, I refuse to do it just, and on principle, you know, I fought all my life to be a, an upstanding member of my union and to pay my dues and to follow the rules. <laughs> and it's what uh, has offered me the stability that I've enjoyed for so many years. I'm not sure. about to throw that out for a few hundred bucks. Right. 
Matthew Voros wants to know how you landed the role of Sinbad. I auditioned for it. And it wasn't Sinbad, it was Dubar, Sinbad's brother. Voros, is that a Hungarian? Vörös. I have no, I don't know who this guy. person is. I just read the questions. Yeah, no, anyway, anyway I'm just <laughs> off on a tangent. Nah, I auditioned fine. for it. My agent called me and said, uh, they're doing this show. Uh, would you like to audition for it? And at that time, I had auditioned for anything. She said, sure. And uh, I got the part. And then they told me that I would be spending uh, my entire year in uh, Cape Town, South Africa. <laughs> uh, <ooh. laughs> well, that's pretty nice. And uh, it was no question. It was no brainer. Then the second season, my wife came down and joined me. And... Nice. Did you remember what you're going to ask me yet, Casey? No, I'm sorry. It slipped. It's, All right, well, I'll, I'll, here's it's gone. <laughs> Have another beer. (laughs) (laughs) Works for me. Uh, Trey wants to know, was Meatballs 3 fun to make? It's one of his all-time favorite movies. Meatballs 3 was a nonstop party from beginning to end. It's amazing that we are still alive. What you were talking about. Yeah. Are you tired? (laughs) (laughs) That was one of the movies. Oh wow! And no, we well, can keep going. And to have Shannon Tweed play your sister. Oh wow! You know, I mean, yeah. that was yeah, that was pretty neat. I have to admit. <laughs> and uh, working with Sally Kellerman uh, from Mash, that was also a a big thing. And the stuff that I got to do, I mean, that boat that I got to drive in that thing, that had a four fifty Ford in it, and I was doing one hundred and twenty miles an hour on the water. <laughs> Now they actually myself. Do it I drove it instead of a stuntman. I was the stuntman. The, <laughs> the guy who built the damn thing was a biker. He was servicing my Harley. <laughs> we used to hang out together and, and hit the bars. And he taught me how to drive the damn thing. And uh, on weekends we'd take it out, and we would terrorize all the the sailboaters on the Ottawa River. <laughs> And those little boats that looked like Harleys on ski-doos, well, we took those out, too. And we would chase people's water skiing and terrorize it. That was a nonstop party. The brain cells that perished during that film, (laughs) uncountable. And Patrick Dempsey, that was one of his first films. Wow. Wow. And, you know, he fell into a hotbed of mayhem. Ray, we have any more? Wait, I, I thought you were going to remember the question you were going to ask. Uh, I'm telling you. That's fine. Wrong. Maybe you That's... were in Meatballs 3, too, and you burned that part. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've lived Meatballs 3. <laughs> uh, George Went wants to know uh, the one and only Turner Edison. Are we going to get a Maniac Mansion revival? Absolutely not. No? I don't think that'll happen. Maniac Mansion, the entire show is owned by the Family Channel, which is owned by Pat Robertson. So uh, I doubt that that was shelved. It's available on YouTube, I guess, but (laughs) that never saw. I don't think it's even been released on DVD. Yeah, I watched them on, uh, I believe I found them on YouTube. 
Yeah, funny show. Uh, if if Very anyone funny. hasn't, yeah, if anyone hasn't watched uh, Maniac Mansion, it's a great show. George is a. Uh, how old are you? Supposed to be four. Four. Yeah, four. You you chase a ball into a machine and then gets turned <laughs> into George. A little kid runs in and I come out. <laughs> Six foot two, two hundred and fifty pounds. And uh, my uncle, who f- ran in after me, turns into a fly. Yeah. Those are the so I watched the uh, maybe the first four episodes of it, and I the the one episode that really stuck out to me was the one where he was uh, his wife. I guess it would be your aunt on the show. Aunt uh, Idella was yeah. She was throwing a fit because there was another fly in the house. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's still a funny show, man. It's still it's hilarious. It's, I mean, that, that was all Second City people that uh, were trying. We were constantly trying to get jokes past the censors of the Family Channel, and that was our big uh, challenge every week to slide something in, because you weren't allowed to have a bottle of wine on the table. Really? Oh yeah, yeah. They were very strict about what you could and could not do, and. Wow, you know that was that was Pat Robertson's network. Wow, even a bottle of wine though. Well, they frown on drinking. I mean, that was the least of our worries. It was a lousy bottle of wine. I mean, (laughs) it was it was getting our double edged humor into the thing that was the biggest challenge. You know, (laughs) screw the wine. I mean, let's get these double entendres in there and. Yeah, they're actually putting the bottle of wine on the table, hoping that's what they see, and yeah. they miss <laughs> the other stuff. <laughs> All right, so uh, Sean Cloran, this is a weird one because it's not really a question. He says, uh, this is awesome. I don't really have any specific question, but I would love to hear about your experiences on Maniac Mansion, a Christmas horror story, and here's one we haven't talked about yet, uh, Puppets Who Kill. Well, Puppets Who Kill, I just had one episode. And I was playing that uh, prisoner and the, the the puppet. I mean, that was a fun show, too. I remember one of my lines when the, the puppet ends up in my cell and I spy with my little eye something warm, soft, pink. <laughs> <laughs> That, that was a it was a lot of fun to do, but I, I only did it for a few days because that's a long it takes about five days to shoot a half hour of comedy. And so I had three days of shooting and I was done. And uh, Alexander Ramos wants to know, uh, what are your future plans? Well, I'm pretty much retired right now. I I don't have any. Uh, I, my plans are to to keep doing X-Men as long as they'll let me do it. And uh, if something comes along that uh, has any interest, then I'd consider it. But uh, I'm no longer actively auditioning for things. Uh, I really like uh, my family time and my free time. I love doing my New York Times crossword puzzles. I've given up the stamp collecting now because... I'm actually just getting rid of it because if I die, then my family knows nothing. And stamp collectors are notorious for saying, oh, I never spent more than 50 bucks on anything. (laughs) Because if you actually told your wife what you just did spend, (laughs) 
you know, the, the house would get renovated. In, yep. In revenge. You did what? <laughs> you spent how much on a hunk of paper? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So those were all very well-kept secrets, and I've gotten rid of almost all of it now because it's just so much easier for me to do than to leave my poor wife to go, well, I don't know what this stuff is worth. Yeah, it's told me you never like, spent uh, very much on it, so it must be worth shit. So it's it's <laughs> kind of like burying the body out in the woods. Then yeah. that's what you're up to. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I hear you, man. I got a lot of uh, memorabilia. I'm looking at a pile of uh, old WWF wrestlers. <laughs> oh my! <laughs> From the '80s, I have no idea what the fuck I'm going to do with. I, I know exactly what you're uh, talking about. I have a lot of just stuff that. Well, I have to make sure that I sign everything I've got that relates to X-Men or any of the movie posters. Well, I still have a hand that writes so that uh, it's not just anything. But that'll sure. be a project. Sure. Well, George, man, we really appreciate you taking the time out of your day. Well, I've had so much fun. This. It's like, what else am I going to do on a Sunday night? You know, it's like <laughs> I watch TV all day long and we're in the middle of a blizzard. Oh, really? I mean, poor Buffalo. God, six Where, feet of yeah, snow. Yeah. I mean, we I have didn't to f- get that. We got about six inches, but it's colder than hell. And Where are you in Canada? I'm in Toronto. Toronto. I have like, to fly to Syracuse tomorrow. Ooh. Well, flying is different, and Syracuse didn't get it as bad, I think. Yeah. Buffalo got the brunt of it because that whole line came in with a very thin uh, line of uh, lake effect snow. So the southern side of Lake Erie... And uh, Lake Ontario got hit the hardest. And uh, yeah. Buffalo is still getting it. They're digging yeah. out six feet of snow. Yeah, I was I was just talking to someone about that. Our friend Amber, she's a good friend of the show. She's been on a bunch of episodes. She lives in Buffalo, and she's only, I think, five foot three. So the, <laughs> yeah. the snow is so above she's her. Under it. <laughs> yeah. she's, she's got to stick a snorkel up to get some air. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully, uh, everyone in Buffalo is doing all right. George, I know you're not a big um, internet guy, but are you anywhere that people can fo- follow you or find you? Nope, I'm not on any social media. All my kids are. All my grandkids are. I wouldn't know what to do. And, and what do you talk about? You know, well, look what I ate for dinner. <laughs> you know, this is what people used to do. They go to restaurants and take a picture of their toast. <laughs> So, no, I don't do any of that stuff. Uh, There's enough people out there that seem to know more about me than I do that uh, have plenty of things to say. And as long as they don't make up shit that's not true, then go ahead. But uh, I can't be bothered. And everybody tells me I should because I was actually refused on that uh, platform uh, cameo. You were refused on Cameo? Yeah, they told me Why? to take a hike because I'm not on social media. Oh, really? Yeah, and a lot of Comic-Cons don't want you if, you, if you're not on social media to plug their show. Oh, sure, I, yeah. Yeah, we know all about that because they try to get like uh, media credentials for things, and they're like, uh, we need all your information from every social media account you have. Yeah. If it's well, not high enough, we won't let you in. Yeah. Well, I had a hard time learning the little I do know about a computer. And uh, I can send an email. But anything more complicated, like even auditions, when we have, it's all self-taped now because of the pandemic. 
and I have to get my son-in-law up here to to help me with it. I can do the recording, you know, if I'm sitting in front, I know there's a camera right here yeah. and I press a button here and it'll record what I've said. But then when I try to send it anywhere, they say, well, this is too big. Yeah. Well, so you what just, do I got to uh, do to make it smaller? You just sent him a, a still shot of you holding that paper up and uh a Christmas yeah. horror story and tell Here's my audition. Here's my audition. Yeah. Uh well, this is the this is the the bane of the modern world. Is, is, is. Although is. this is stuff that they talked about. What we are doing right now. When I was a little kid in school, they said the time will come when you pick up the telephone and you're talking to somebody, you'll be able to see them. And here we are. Yeah. yeah. We're doing it. We're doing it. And they also <laughs> predicted in the magazine, I remember I was in like grade four or, or grade five, that there would be self-driving cars. And they showed a family sitting around a table playing cards while their car was being driven on the highway. And here we are. Here we and are. They're doing it. Oh, I can't wait so, for my, my self-driving car because I want to sleep all the way to work. Well. <laughs> They're making them right. We just yeah, they are making them, but I don't yet. trust them because a lot of them. I don't trust that shit either. I like and, to be in uh, control. <laughs> I do too. I, uh, I I would never trust that. I always say this. Everybody asks me, uh, you know, do you get some good sleep on the on the flight? It's like, no, I can't sleep on the plane. What if I have to fucking take over? What what if something happens and I need to be in control? That's right. Like, what if I have to land the plane? Right. Yeah. I can't be sleeping. No, but I do sleep on planes. I hate flying. Uh, uh, I mean, being a big guy in an airplane is, uh, to me, tantamount to torture. Yeah, it's not fun. I mean, I no. fly enough that I get upgraded all the time constantly. So I'm yeah, usually well, in first class, which I'm not. I'm back there in the, the seats where your knees are being dug into by the guy in front of you. And yeah. And when you're when you reach my age. There's a whole different problem, and that is having a prostate the size of a softball, <laughs> and uh, somebody's in the bathroom, and they're lined up in the aisle. Yep. So <clears throat> I try and uh, when we have to fly somewhere, uh, like I don't like flying overseas because that's seven eight hours in the air. Oh yeah. I mean, South Africa was. Uh, it was eight or nine hours over to Europe and then 10 hours from our connector to Cape Town. Wow. So you were spending almost 20 hours in the air. Wow. <laughs> we were, uh, I was just talking to this, talking to someone about this the other day. And since we mentioned uh, pro wrestlers earlier, we were talking about uh, uh, the missing link. Could you imagine Andre the Giant flying over to Japan and having to use the bathroom? Like, this has been discussed on multiple yeah, different Yeah, well, I worked with Andre. Really? <laughs> Tell us about that. I did a commercial with him. Really? A beer beer commercial. Really? And the Little Beaver. Major yeah, wrestler. yeah, I remember him, yeah. And on uh, Quest for Fire... We had all wrestlers. And uh, I worked with uh, the great Antonio. Wow. The giant Haystacks. Yeah, yeah. Haystacks <laughs> Calhoun. Man, I'm dying here. And Adrian Street. Wow. A British wrestler who dragged, who wrestled in drag. Yeah, yeah. 
So what was the, the beer? What was what was Andre like to work with? Oh, he was a gem. He was the yeah. kindest, gentlest man you'd ever want to meet. Yeah, I've always heard that. Unless you got on his uh, bad side or, well, or chopped any, him in the ring. Everybody's like that. I mean, yeah. <laughs> well, not everybody. <laughs> <laughs> All right, George. Uh, I'm gonna let you uh, go here. Cough get a, my lung out. Yeah. Get a drink of water. <laughs> Thanks so much for taking the time out of your day. Well, anytime, this, man. You know, if you want really more appreciate stories, it. I got, I got a million of them. This has been a lot of fun, man. Uh, we're looking forward to uh, you coming to the states again for a Comic Con. Hopefully, Ray and I will be able to catch up. I with think you the there. next one I'm going to is going to be in Chicago, uh, the end of March. Great. Beginning of April, so it's March 30th, April 1st and 2nd in Chicago. Great. All right, man. Thank you so much. Uh, we appreciate it, and we thank will you for talk having me. Uh, I love these. Yeah, Thanks, man. We'll talk pleasure. to you again. Right on. Take care. Thanks, brother. Thank you.